This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Like the kōkako, the saddleback, or tieke, belongs to the New Zealand wattlebird family. A family to which the huia belonged and which has been established in this country since ancient times, much longer than most of our other birds. The saddleback takes its name from the bright reddish saddle on its back, which according to legend is the mark of Maui's hand. Sadly, this attractive bird has disappeared from the main islands and exists only on a few offshore islands, carefully chosen locations for resettlement away from predators, which appears to have saved the tieke from total extinction. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or chaos, made possible by support from the Peace and Disarmament Education Trust. We're talking with Kevin Clements, who is the uh, former director and foundation chair of Peace and Conflict Studies, the New Zealand National Center for Peace and Conflict Studies, and is now the uh, one of the directors of Toto Peace Institute in Japan, and they do research and. Independent non is an independent nonpartisan institute committed to advancing a more just and peaceful world through policy or oriented peace research. You can listen to this program by podcast by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcasts and then going to community or chaos. Well, Kevin, it's good to have you on. Welcome it's to, good to be with you again. Cheers. Welcome to community and hopefully not too much chaos this time. <laughs> right, hopefully not. Uh, Kevin, I'll start off with a question. Since the invasion of the Ukraine, the media and other commentators have s- seemed to have painted a picture of Putin and Russia as bad and the West as good. Is this a helpful way of looking at the world? Could you comment on this? Well, it's never helpful to kind of demonize um, political actors that you have to have some sort of relationship with. Um, and um, partly because, as we know, when you when you start demonizing um, others, you basically um, are just a step away from dehumanizing them. And if you dehumanize them, then, um, then there's no particular reason or rationale for why you should want to engage them in civilized conversation. So the demonization of, uh, of your opponents is, is a very dangerous step to take. And, um, and, and having a kind of a Manichaean division of, of the world into goodies and baddies, uh, depending on where you line up um, around this war in Ukraine, I think is also very dangerous. Uh, it's true that most of Western Europe and, uh, has lined up with the U.S. and Australia and New Zealand and Japan have too. But there are significant numbers of other countries that have not, like um, all the BRICS countries, Brazil and, and South Africa and, uh, and so forth. So, um, you know, it, it, we shouldn't just feel that, you know, the world is divided into goodies and baddies in the West and the rest. Um, I think that uh, makes it very difficult to uh, stimulate and get negotiations moving. Does the 
Ukraine crisis and invasion have roots that go back well beyond 2014. When oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, way, way back when the Soviet Union was disintegrating, I mean, the whole status of Ukraine in the um, post-Soviet bloc was a, was a, bi- was a big issue. Um, and Russia, um, you know, wanted to have as close a possible relationship with it. Uh, and they did with President Yankovych. Um, uh, he, was a, he was very much a, a, a pro-Russian leader. Um, that was the moment when, uh, you know, Russia and Ukraine were basically on the same page. And um, Yankovych didn't want to have anything to do with the European Union, and that suited Putin down to the ground, and he certainly didn't want anything to do with NATO. Um, but then he was overthrown in, um, you know, one of the Velvet Revolutions. And, uh, and then um, um, recent um, political leaders in Ukraine have wanted to, to swing westwards to have a membership of the Un- European Union and, uh, in um, Zelensky's case, to actually be a member of NATO. And that's what alarmed um, Russia a lot. And as you know, there was a lot of kind of controversy about um, NATO expansion in that um, post-Soviet era. Can you go back to um, that a bit and talk about that? Yes. I, um, well, at the end of the Cold War, there were there were lots of conversations between Gorbachev and Reagan and others about how the West would not um, try and um, expropriate the former Russian allies and Warsaw Pact members, um, and the way in which they indicated they wouldn't do, they, they would would abide by that, was by um, saying that they would not uh, seek membership of former Soviet um, satellites uh, into NATO. There's a lot of controversy um, on that question, isn't there? Sorry, I tried to find evidence that there had been a verbal promise, and I couldn't find that. I found. Um, a person, uh, a, a diplomat who had been there, who said there wasn't a verbal. Yeah, Bob Bob Zolik. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, he he felt that there wasn't, but um, in in a lot of the certainly in the security discussions and so forth, there was a kind of a recognition that NATO expansion um, would generate anxiety in Russia. Okay. Um, whether whether it was formally agreed or not, I mean, I, I don't think that's the point. I mean, it was just that basically lots of the um, strategic commentators and others felt that um, getting erstwhile Warsaw Pact allies into NATO um, without offering something um, similar to Russia itself. Remember, right at the very beginning in the, in the post-Soviet period, there was even um, this kind of a strong desire that the OSCE should... Um, be expanded a bit, and that Russia should become um, um, a dialogue partner with NATO, and uh, more importantly, a kind of a security partner with NATO. Um, and that was uh, that. That certainly has been documented, and that was um, uh, basically undermined by by the West. What happened to Russia at that point, after immediately after Gorbachev, because it it changed considerably, and in some ways, I suppose that. Um, people would recognize as favorable, but in other ways, very unfavorably. Well, um, what, what, I, I what happened was talk that... Well, the, the example that happened maybe in New Zealand and Chile. Yeah. Um, Gorbachev was a very distinctive um, Russian leader. He uh, definitely was very interested in Glasnost and opening up to the West. 
uh, he was very keen as well on dismantling um, sort of socialist economy and replacing it with a capitalist one. Um, what what I don't think he um, really recognized was that in his um, absence, um, Soviet leaders who succeeded him um, would become so kind of personally rapacious, um, sell off, you know, lots of Soviet assets, former Soviet assets. Privatize them? Privatize them, sell them off, uh, and create a huge oligarchy, um, which replaced the old Communist Party oligarchy. Um, but, it, but at the same time, that, that oligarchy had little or no interest in developing sort of strong and cordial security relationships. It simply wanted to make conditions profitable for, um, for, for their own uh, economic activity. Putin was part of that, wasn't he? Putin was definitely part of that, yeah. And, and, and to add insult to injury there, I mean, Putin... Uh, managed to kind of change the constitution so that he could be prime minister and then come back as president and then succeeded in kind of basically installing himself in perpetuity, um, which meant that you didn't, you know, it was very difficult then for dissidents in Russia who wanted, you know, good and cordial relationships with the West or who wanted, uh, you know, something approximating a welfare state to replace the Russian system. Those people were all completely marginalized. It's a bad sign when a leader makes themselves a leader in permanently or but but you you have to worry I think was um yeah and then then there were then in um there'd been there'd been discussions in minx and so forth which had been facilitated by Germany and France and others about how to make sure that um Ukrainian sovereignty was respected, um, and that's where a lot of the discussions around, uh, you know, uh, sorry, I'm backtracking a little bit, but um, when when the Soviet Union collapsed, um, uh, uh, Ukraine still um, was providing um, uh, storage facilities for Russian nuclear weapons, and there was a deal made there that um, if um, Ukraine gave up those nuclear weapons returned to Russia, um, that there would be security guarantees for their sovereignty. Um, and that was quite explicit. And that, that gave rise into the different minced agreements um, around you know, what Russia would or wouldn't accept um, in terms of its own relationships with Ukraine. Well, tell us a bit about that, because it was, there was a, a fair size minority of Russians in eastern Ukraine, as I understand it. And, yeah, no, that's, and that's that one of minority. Yeah, there's a, that, and a that was one of the big challenges. Some kind of independence from Ukraine or else. No, that was Russia. yeah, and 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 that this is one of the big challenges because under the former Soviet Union, Russia, of course, sent a lot of Russians into the different satellite countries, and significant numbers of them remain. So the the most significant number outside of the Donbass would be in Kaliningrad, uh, in um, the Baltic states. Um, and Russia's feeling is that wherever there are majorities of Russian speakers, then Russia has some rights to defend them and so forth. So if you take um, one of the former um, Russian satellites uh, in Georgia, when, when that split up in, between Georgia and Abkhazia, um, there was a strong Russian um, majority in Abkhazia, 
and the Russians just quietly, as soon as they lost their um, Georgian citizenship and their passports were no longer Georgian and, and they couldn't get around, the Russian government simply started providing all Abkhazians with Russian passports and then basically annexed Abkhazia. Um, and I think it was sort of hoping that it could do something similar to the Ukraine. All right. With why did Putin wait until a year ago before attacking, and then why did he uh, attack when he did? In your opinion. Well, I mean, I think all of the pundits who have looked at this think that he made a major strategic mistake. He could have, um, uh, he, he could have really um, um, probably developed a kind of a very soft invasion when Yankovich was president and the pro-Russian leader. Um, he chose not to do that then, but but at that same time, he did. They did have agreements about. Uh, Russian protection of Russian speakers in the Donbass. Um, I think he just um, got impatient. He could see that Zelensky was not going to be a compliant puppet. Um, and I think they really did believe that they could have a blitzkrieg kind of invasion that would result in the rapid overthrow of Ukraine. So I think he made some major strategic blunders um, and um, certainly didn't calculate that um, Ukraine would defend themselves to the extent to which they have. Um, but his his basic orientation is to restore Mother Russia to its kind of former uh, imperial glory, which um, you know means um, uh, you know significant intervention in Poland and Finland and the Baltic states and uh, in all the Caucasus, um, and he would like to be able to have a, you know, a Russian sphere of influence there. Uh, and that was certainly one of the major motivators. But um, I, don't, I don't think there's any doubt at all that um, expansion of NATO uh, proved to be a kind of a, you know, a, a straw too far, really, for, for, for Putin. He felt that um, uh, when, when it looked as though all of the former Soviet um, allies suddenly switched, uh, then uh, you know, Russia itself began to feel rather isolated. Uh, yes. Looking at the map, uh, he, they actually invaded Crimea first. Crimea he did, yes, in 214. Now, two things. Um, why was Crimea so much more important, and why was it simpler to invade than the, um, Ukraine itself and why, well, uh, we, why, we, why because, because the, uh, well, the the major the major motivation for um, annexing annexing Crimea was that if Crimea was in a um, a, a relationship with um, Ukraine, uh, it, it placed in jeopardy the whole of the Russian um, Black Sea um, port for its military for its navy. Um, so there were strong strategic reasons to kind of annex Ukraine, uh, annex Crimea. Um, and again, there were large numbers of Russian speakers in Crimea, but at the same time, there were large numbers of Tatars, um, the former Cossacks who had formed a very integral part of Russian military in the past. Um, 
And um, the Tatars, are, um, I think, would, would actually prefer to be with Ukraine than with Russia. Um, the, uh, the Crimea was, gave them an only all-year-round ports. Yeah, that's right. The, the North Sea ports are frozen for a good chunk of the, the year, and the Black Sea port is the open only open one that's really open yeah. all the time. I was, while we're talking about Crimea, why do you think the West um, was more relaxed about that? Well, because they could see some uh, reasons why it was within the Russian sphere of influence. Um, they didn't want to provoke a confrontation. I think they also felt that um, the Ukrainian military and Zelensky at that stage weren't prepared, prepared for a fight. Um, so I think they were willing to let it go. Um, they did impose sanctions, um, and they expressed you know, discontent at um, the annexation, uh, and they were definitely worried, the West was definitely worried then about wider, so wider Russian intentions. Um, but by and large, they felt that it was within the Russian sphere of influence because of the Black Sea port. Some people, of course, will say that that was a, a warning that you have to react strongly and militarily when something like this happens. Yeah, that's right. The Hawks, the Hawks would say that would have been the moment for the West to have drawn a red line. Um, uh, the West didn't. I, I don't think it really wanted to buy a fight with Russia over Crimea. Um, the supply lines and logistics of defending that, uh, you know, that part of Ukraine would have been very challenging, especially since there was already kind of um, a lot of Russian um, uh, build-up of mercenaries and others in the Donbass. I was looking at a map of Crimea itself, and there's a, a little isthmus that goes right into the Ukraine. But it's, in other respects, it's like an island. I was wondering yeah. if you were bargaining. You could say, um, we want this isthmus so we'll always have access to the Black Sea. I mean, Ukraine could say, but yeah. you could have the main part of Crimea and then you'll also have access to the Black Sea and all the ports you need. I think that would, I, I think that's got to be part of a kind of a negotiating plan. Um, you know, at the moment we're a long way from that, but, you know, I also think that um, it's not very helpful for Zelensky to say, well, um, there's no negotiations until absolutely every bit of Ukrainian territory is returned. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, and so I think it's very important that Zelensky kind of has some sense about what he really wants to, um, what, he, what he would consider central to his sovereignty, security, and, and a stable border. His tone has um, changed, has it? He was always going to defend Ukraine very bravely himself and so he put himself at risk but he talked I think if I remember correctly more about negotiation possibilities six months ago than now yeah and they had these February conversations around uh, you know which were um, apparently quite quite congenial um, and uh, about you know what Russian want what Russia wanted and what um, Ukraine could tolerate um, but they've, they've, they all um, 
uh, ended. Apart from the high-level consultations about prisoner swaps, which have been going on in Turkey now for nearly the whole year. Once Ukraine was invaded, um, were, did they actually have a realistic choice between anything between surrender or self-defense? I mean, it's um, well, they could, they they could have chosen to become a, a, a puppet regime of, uh, of of Russia, but they certainly have no had no desire to do that. Um, after the Velvet uh, Revolution, so um, and and I think there was a kind of a strong sense that um, even with the high levels of corruption and so forth, there was a strong sense that uh, they could um, um, become a kind of a, a former Russian democracy. Um, so I don't think that surrender was an option. Um, uh, so self-defense was all that remained. Um, and uh, it shows you the, uh, you know, that um, between 2014, when Russia um, invaded and annexed Crimea, um, uh, Ukraine had actually um, become quite well equipped militarily from um, America and NATO and so forth for um, uh, for realistic self-defense, which is why they chose self-defense. Also. He got elected partially on anti-corruption, and he's done work on anti-corruption, even recently, as I understand it. Yeah, he, uh, he's actually sacked um, some of his close ministers who were involved in corruption. Um, Crimea still ranks, you know, in the bottom uh, 5% of the anti-corruption index, uh, Transparency International's corruption index. Um, so it's a, that's a that's a major problem, um, and there's also a lot of anxiety around um, you know, how much of the weaponry that's flowing in there is going completely completely to the Ukrainian army, whether some of it's being siphoned off for more malign purposes. I mean, either uh, for weapon sales on the black market, or or worse, kind of um, different kind of uh, mercenary groups and so forth in Ukraine. No matter what one thinks about the motives of provocation or lack of provocation of the invasion of Ukraine, it was ex extreme and by its nature inexcusable and evil, and an inexcusable and evil action. Acknowledging all this, could you talk about seeing the conflict in black and white terms with Putin as an evil man, madman comparable to Hitler? Well, I don't. I don't think there's any doubt that um, anybody that's got a sort of a, even the vaguest of interest in um, the United Nations Charter uh, has to see um, this invasion as a clear act of aggression and contrary to UN uh, rules and regulations. Um, so there's no doubt that it was, um, uh, you know, seen as absolutely inexcusable. Um, an unacceptable action on the part of a bordering nation state and an action that really um, challenged what has um, not been challenged for a very long time, which is the uh, safety and security of agreed borders. Um, 
and uh, and in Europe as well. So this is uh, you, you know, so there's absolutely no doubt at all that um, Russia committed um, uh, you know a, a major international crime by invading U- Ukraine. Um, I think that the Western response to that, um, you know, at one level can be justified as, um, you know, uh, supporting the um, uh, the victim in the face of an unacceptable illegal action. Um, but I think that um, insofar as the West and others have been describing this as a kind of a, a just war and a war between good and evil, um, I think that's uh, that's a, that's a challenge. If you wanted ceasefire negotiations, or if you want a negotiated settlement to the war, I mean, the one thing that nobody wants is a kind of a stalemate with um, Russians in the Donbass and Ukrainians on the other side sniping at each other, like as in North and South Korea. Um, so I don't think it, I don't think it's helpful to demonize. Um, Putin in, in that way, I think it, it, it certainly doesn't create a good climate for negotiations. Even um, in the well, heat of the Cold War, you had a, there were many diplomats and so on who didn't see Russia or even communism entirely evil. I've, I've been reading the history of uh, George Kennan, who was the, actually this, the main strategist of containment of the Soviet Union, but he saw the containment as economic and cultural mainly. you want to talk about him and what he had to say? Yeah, I, I, yeah. Kennan was very interesting because he certainly, in recent times, um, was very distressed, Like even like our talks like Chris, Kissinger, saying that, you know, you don't want to kind of keep prodding a wounded bear um, because uh, they're just going to get crazier and crazier. Um, so... Kennan and a lot of, um, of other distinguished foreign policy commentators are saying that it's not a good idea to sort of see this conflict in manichae and evil, unevil terms. Um, I mean, I had an example of this the other night. I went and attended the prayer meeting um, given by uh, um, a Ukrainian Catholic bishop uh, in St. Joseph's Cathedral here in Dunedin. Um, and the liturgy, I expect the liturgy to be, to be all about peace, but, I mean, in the last uh, two pages of the liturgy, it was basically um, calling on God to defend Ukraine against uh, the evildoers on the other side and and uh, wanting to make sure that God was able to smite them down and, and um, remove their shields so that they could be given the kind of treatment that God would, God would accord to... Um, uh, you know, evil perpetrators. Um, and I don't think that kind of position is really helpful. Um, and, and so Kennan, I think we should listen to the wisdom of Kennan. I mean, he knew a lot about Russia and um, and how to contain it. Um, he lived in uh, Russia and, he, and, he, and as you said, he, he was certainly very averse to making sure that it was military containment. He saw that as kind of wasteful and ultimately self-defeating. Yep, but he was very under... Communist. He, he was. He, he certainly was very anti-communist. And very anti-Soviet uh, Union as it acted then, or was then. But he yeah, saw, I mean, and there were reasons for doing culture. that. I mean, the, the, the Soviet Union, you know, had huge violations of human rights. It, it wasn't the, the utopia that um, its advocates thought it was going to be, uh, and it pursued um, a very military foreign policy 
with a lot of proxy countries, you know, in Africa and elsewhere. Um, yeah, George, and and worse, it, it had, um, you know, it, it directly invaded um, Czechoslovakia and Hungary. I mean, when it looked as though those countries wanted to assert some sovereignty, so it had a, you know, it had a pretty negative reputation. Mind you, mind you, America does too, because if you look at America's wars over the last hundred years, um, America has not been averse to utilizing military power and force whenever it's want to get its interests recognized and they're not being accommodated through negotiations. Well, we might have a piece of music now. Here they come marching past the houses, shiny boots and khaki blouses, stiff as the creases in their trousers, standing tall and straight and strong. And they all keep in step together, glint of steel and flash of leather, braving every kind of weather as they boldly march along. You can dismiss it as a ploy for the enlistment of the boys who'll be impressed to see the toys and play the games that can be played. And you may well prefer abstention, but I feel compelled to mention you do well to pay attention when the boys are on parade. Look at your sons before they're older, they'll be stronger, they'll be bolder, just the thing to make a soldier, and we'll turn them into men. And they'll be taught to follow orders, keep the peace and guard the borders to protect us from marauders and defend us to the end. But the position they'll be filling is to be able and be willing to be killed or do the killing when there's a price that must be paid. And you may well prefer abstention, but I feel compelled to mention you do well to pay attention when the boys are on parade. In the pursuit of a community of decency and unity and equal opportunity, we stand prepared to fight. And if there's a threat to our position from an unruly opposition, then with guns and ammunition, we'll repel with all our might. And we'll dehumanize and hate them, sending the troops to decimate them as in the name of all the nation. All it stands for is betrayed. And you may well prefer abstention, but I feel compelled to mention you do well to pay attention when the boys are on parade. For merely the whim or intuition of an elected politician makes a melee with no conditions once the monster quits the cage. It's a machine that gives no quarter, dealing death and sowing slaughter, raping mothers, wives and daughters. In an all-consuming rage And we may well believe we need it And we'll pay to arm and feed it But can you tell me who will lead it When the decisions must be made And you may well prefer abstention But I feel compelled to mention You do well to pay attention When the boys are on parade Some will wonder what's to fear and say that there's no danger here but there has never been a year when soldiers haven't been at war 
And all the evil executions And the bloody revolutions And the ultimate solutions too Have all been seen before And there is always someone scheming And sometimes at night when dreaming In the distance I hear screaming And in my heart I feel afraid And you may well prefer abstention But I feel compelled to mention You do well to pay attention When the boys are on parade Here they come marching past the houses Shiny boots and khaki blouses Stiff as the creases in their trousers Standing tall and straight and strong And is it any cause for pride That now the women march beside them Will there be wiser gods to guide them In discerning right from wrong For every step is a reminder Of the threat that lies behind If we forget the ties that bind us When the authentic game is played may well prefer abstention But I feel compelled to mention You do well to pay attention When the boys are on parade And as the procession passes by Consider the sight before your eyes Cause it'll be you they kill and die For if they are called to the crusade Or you may love them and adore them You may hate them and abhor them But for Christ's sake don't ignore them When the boys are on parade We're talking with Kevin Clements, former director of the Peace and Conflict Studies, and we're talking about the world since the invasion of Ukraine, but also before. Let's go back to George Kennan. He was actually the chief, or maybe the chief strategist for containing the Soviet Union, the um, Yet he he had questions about NATO itself. He didn't he didn't believe that the Soviet Union was going to attack Western Europe, and he advised strongly that the after the fall of the Berlin Wall against bringing all of all of Eastern Europe and all of Russia's um, neighbors into NATO. Now, of course, the counter argument is that. Every country should have total sovereignty and to be able to make the alliances, the peaceful alliances or military alliances as they wish, no matter who they were neighbors to. And of course, ideally, that's probably right. But you have to ask yourself what would happen if, or what happened to Cuba when they had an alliance with Russia? And what would happen to Caribbean nations or Mexico or if um, they had formed an alliance with China right now. <laughs> yes. But so there's the... We need to work for a world where nations really can make their own choices, despite... The yes, and, and, and I think that's one of the other principles of the United Nations, which is that each country has a right to self-determination. Um, and in situations like this, where you have big hegemonic powers like Russia... Um, seeing a country um, exert its right to self-determination like Ukraine, um, that uh, that becomes kind of threatening. Um, 
because it's uh, it's the polar opposite of what the Ukrainians and, and many Russians are looking for. Um, uh, you know, a lot of Putin's um, behavior, I think, uh, can be seen as a sign of weakness rather than strength. I think he is truly fearful about the consequences of um, too many strong and robust and independent countries on his border. Now, it's clear that, that a lot of the establishment around Putin and a, a large percentage of the population, I wouldn't know if it's a minority or a majority, of Russian people share Putin's nationalism to some extent. And is there any evidence that his successor would be less extreme than, than he, or more amendable? Yeah. Um, well, it, um, you know, I have uh, a very good friend and colleague in, um, in Moscow, um, Vladimir Baranovsky, who was at a meeting I was at in Japan. Um, and he uh, felt very concerned about speaking publicly about his own feelings on this because there was a lot of self-censorship. But he did say that, um, by and large, uh, Russians bought into the notion that uh, Putin was basically defending the motherland. Um, and there was a very close linkage, of course, between, uh, and, and Putin's made this very clear, which is kind of very uncommunist of a former KGB operative, but he's a, there's a very close connection between um, the Russian Orthodox Church under Patriarch Kirill uh, and the um, Russian leadership. Um, they're basically in glove and hand. And the Russian Orthodox Church um, is essentially a kind of a, a mother church defending that, you know, rather medieval notions of, um, uh, the, of, of the motherland and, and, uh, and its extent. And the, and the reason that, that um, uh, Ukraine is seen as a very important part of their um, worldview is because in medieval times, I mean, Rus, which was based in Russia, based in the Ukraine, uh, and which gave rise to the Russian Orthodox Church, was, um, you know, was clearly part of the then Russian Empire. Um, so it's a very tangled and long historic web. But, uh, but um, Vladimir, Vladimir Baranovsky, anyway, said that um, leaving aside propaganda, um, most Russians, in fact, were supportive of the war, um, even though they knew that the casualty rates were high. Um, and if there weren't a Putin there, um, uh, maybe a, a Lavrov type of person, the current foreign secretary, um, I don't know whether they would be quite as bad. I think they would be willing to cut more deals than Putin. Putin seems very uh, recalcitrant at the moment and not really willing to negotiate. The big, the big question, of course, is whether China's current peace plan, which is really a call for a dialogue under their auspices and others, um, you know, has any attraction for um, the Russian leadership, um, and they uh, and um, it's not detailed the, uh, or explicit at all. Yeah, and the, and the president of Belarus has been pushing the China line. I mean, um, but you know, if I were um, in the United States or in um, in the Ukrainian government, I would certainly not dismiss the initiative because the moment you can start talking, then maybe you can strike some deals. I noticed that the Chinese um, 
or against unauthorized sanctions, like economic sanctions. And that's yeah. well and good. I mean, sanctions can be misused as well as used well. Um, but you have to remember that, for instance, apartheid was basically the, the, the two factors that helped destroy apartheid. One was the the people, particularly Afro, African people of South Africa, but the people, and the other was the sanctions from all over the world, and they were unauthorized. They were actually often opposed to corporate interests and brought about by institutions like churches and freedom groups. Yeah, I mean, sanctions are a bit of a double-edged instrument. Um, I mean, the well, evidence. I can't on imagine the United Nations using sanctions as long as you have the five-power veto. Yeah. Um, well, the the, um, the sanctions regime. I mean, I think is hurting Russia a bit, but it, but it's um, uh, it's got North Korea and China and India and other places in South Africa that are willing to kind of break the sanctions regime. Um, and so, uh, and, and, and it's done a whole lot of oil deals um, with other countries that need oil and um, and have a higher need for oil than they do for dependence on the U.S. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't think that sanctions are working all that effectively. And in fact, um, um, some evidence that the Russian economy has grown in the last year instead of shrunk. Russia has a population and probably the resources to carry on this war for a long time, even, even if they are expelled from Ukraine. They will still be, won't they still be in a position to threaten Ukraine indefinitely? So where do we well, there's, there's no doubt about that. I mean, they have a, a formidable military, uh, even if the kind of current um, conflict doesn't sort of reflect that. Um, but they, they certainly have um, uh, more reserves um, than, than <coughs> Ukraine. Um, they've got a lot of military equipment which they've been using, but which has been replenished. Um, so I think there's absolutely no doubt at all that they could go on for a, a very long time. Um, and that's one of the big challenges, I think, which is why it doesn't, it's not helpful to demonize the Russian leadership because Ukraine is, at some stage is going to have to have a rapprochement with Russia. I mean, it can't ignore it because it's, you know, it shares a huge land border with Russia and with Belarus, uh, and it can't just sort of you know, be in a state of um, permanent conflict with them. So it has to begin striking a kind of a bilateral and... Okay. And, and regional um, agreements. What, what are your thoughts on this? Well, you know, there's a very interesting um, proposal that came out of from a group of um, religious leaders and scientists and doctors and others in um, uh, in Wellington, which was, you know, a kind of a whole notion of a of an Easter peace. I mean, um, an Eastern Orthodox peace, which would begin on Good Friday and uh, the 14th of April. Um, European Standard Time, and 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 it would you know be a kind of a, a sort of religiously inspired ceasefire, and to see how long it lasted, um, and then you know it's coupled with withdrawal of troops, political borders as they were before the conflict, and 
reconstruction plans and so forth. I mean, I think, you know, we, we need to be quite imaginative and creative in thinking about how we can get, how we can persuade people that the benefits of peace outweigh the um, possibilities of war. What do you think about people who say that we can't give Russia anything because they'll feel rewarded for their act of extreme violence and um, going against the the United Nations and also the kind of world order that we need where nations are secure from this kind of invasion. But how do you how you negotiate? Yeah, I mean that, that's, if, that's if, the biggest that's the biggest challenge. I mean, not only do nothing we, away. Should, should, yeah, we shouldn't be demonizing Putin, but it's it, if, but most people would feel very nervous about extending trust towards him. I mean, I, I'm not absolutely sure about Russian dynamics, but I think that if if, it, if it's clear that Putin's about to lose this war, um, then I think his position in Russia will be will be challenged. So he has vested regime interests in keeping it going as long as he can and, and until he can point to some victory. I mean, if, if they can, you know, point to a victory in Baktum and things like that, um, you know, then he, he may be able to sort of say we can, we can negotiate. But at the moment, uh, there's no, no indication that he's willing to do that. Um, and uh, well, what can the Ukrainians do? I mean, they, obviously, they can't give away cities. They can't give away cities, but I think they could give away uh, Russian-speaking parts of the Donbass in return for guaranteed sovereignty, guaranteed security. I mean, the other the other piece of the puzzle you just put on the table, Marvin, is in a post um, ceasefire peace agreement context. Um, what can the West provide Russia so that it doesn't feel um, vulnerable in terms of its own security? Um, also, they need I to think, feel respected in some way. Huh? Yeah, they need to be respected. They need to be treated with dignity. Um, Putin, uh, you know, but, but not in such a way that, that you know, um, this can be construed as a victory for Putin. I think that would be very bad. Um, but in, in a way which, you know, provides them with some um, exit options that, you know, currently aren't on the table. Okay. Uh, what do you feel like? It seems to me that relations with China between the United States and China have grown worse over the last couple of years. And that we've actually that the United States has actually paired off Russia and China as as similar, and the, the almost an yeah. I, I, I think I think this coupling is very dangerous. Um, first of all, it forces um, Russia and China closer together. And remember, in the past, China has been quite ambivalent about Russia and uh, Russian encroachment on its own border areas and so forth. Um, so they're not they're not sort of by and large natural allies, um, but if um, if the West keeps on sort of needling um, uh, China and worse kind of developing containment policies against China, then of course they have no alternative but to look at you know allies roundabout like um, Russia and North Korea and elsewhere, um, and I think that's very bad. Um, I, I personally don't think that um, they should be uh, linked or allied like this. I don't think 
um, there's any imminent prospect, for example, of China invading Taiwan. In fact, um, one of the videos you sent me prior to this conversation I mean, showed very clearly from a Chinese former general, Zhao Bo, um, that China had no um, timeline for uh, the reincorporation of Taiwan into its into its country. He was interesting because um, he was former high in the Chinese military, but he was sent to this security conference by the Chinese. Yeah, and he was very, I thought he was very moderate. moderate. Um, and I think the West needs to um, pick up that kind of moderation um, and respond to it positively. I, I see absolutely nothing to be gained by um, a global containment of China. I think that the um, AUKUS arrangement and the Quad with India and so forth is going to be more counterproductive than productive. And I really think we need to figure out new ways of connecting and relating to China um, that doesn't involve us seeing them uh, in enemy terms because I think the Chinese government knows that it has more to lose from a kind of a, um, a military conflict with the West. Um, and, uh, and also the other thing is that the, uh, um, uh, the notion that um, all of the wargaming shows that uh, you know, um, uh, America could not continue to support a war in Ukraine and have a war in East Asia at the same time. It would just overstretch its resources, and it would it would eventually lose. Um, so I, I think there are good strategic reasons why it should um, uh, not be bellicose, and I think there are good strategic reasons why the West um, should not uh, keep on thinking about China in terms of containment. Um, Some you know, people um, as, say as Joe Joe Bo said. Um, uh, you know, it's uh, although its military expenditure is high, um, it's been at two percent for the last decade, um, which is perfectly in line with the military expenditure of most other countries in the world, except for the United States. Except for the United States, which, which is, is way higher. Yeah. Um, one of the things is China. Some people consider China a developing power that is continues will probably continue to grow in importance. And that the um, that China and, the, and some of the Brexit countries who, who won't have a unipower world where the United States is the major power, but we will have a, a world of parallel powers with um, other nations, including China, but not just China. Um, important influence even when the United States disagrees and that China doesn't have to go to war to get this so what they have to do to, to arrive at this is for them to develop economically and also for the Brexit I mean BRIC countries like India Brazil and others to also develop Well, you can see you can see why it's not a good idea to alienate uh, China and Russia um, from the recent G20 meeting held in India. Um, at that meeting, I mean, India 
and other countries uh, just um, absolutely refuse to have a resolution condemning Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. Um, so already you can see that you know the um, the so-called impenetrable Western Bloc, I mean, um, you know, is not you know is not um, completely invulnerable. I mean, it's I think it is actually quite um, uh, fragile in, in many respects. Um, so I, I think it, it's really important that we um, separate China from Russia. We don't conflate the two, and because of Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. Um, and I think it's really important that we figure out um, different kinds of diplomacy for for China, um, especially when you're as indebted to it um, as New Zealand is in terms of the bulk of our trade. Um, you know, we can't we can't afford to be bellicose towards China um, because you know two thirds of our trade is tied up with that country, uh, and that's the same for a lot of other other countries as well. So. I mean, I think we have to kind of acknowledge that China is a leading power. And, and as you said, I think we've got to begin thinking about a multipolar world rather than a, a single polar world. Um, and we've got, to, we've got to figure out ways in which we can really reinvigorate and, um, and revive the multilateral system, which is at a very low ebb at the moment. Um, Does that include the UN? That includes the UN, yes, absolutely. Um, so regional organizations in the United Nations have really got to be revived so they can play an active role in, in uh, conflict resolution and peace building uh, and in peacekeeping and in trying to avert the um, kinds of flashpoints which um, ignited the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Okay, we've got about a couple of minutes. Anything? How would you like... What were your hopes of future, and how do you get there? Well, my hope, my hope, uh, my hope for the future is that this war doesn't continue another year. Um, my my anxiety is that it will, because um, both sides uh, think they can win. Um, both leaders on both sides feel that their regimes and their own power is at stake, um, and both sides uh, are being, uh, you know, have the weapons necessary to continue the war. Uh, but I think if this war continues for another year, it's really going to shape concepts of global order um, uh, to the detriment of global order in a paradoxical kind of way. So my hope, my hope is that we can we can get some uh, concrete ceasefire negotiations moving, either under the, in China's auspices or under China and Tur Turkey's auspices, or more optimally under the United Nations auspices. Um, and I hope that we can uh, certainly negotiate a ceasefire um, and then set up machinery for um, uh, negotiating a, a more permanent peace agreement. Um, but it's going to involve a lot of give and take on both sides, and at the moment neither side seems to be either willing to give or to take. Well, thanks a lot for coming along, and um, I'll have to think about there. Yeah, no, thank you for asking me, and um, all the best. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.